Thank you for listening to this service from Calvary of Albuquerque. It's our hope that this message will help you grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Hey, Albuquerque, good to be here with you guys once again. Always a pleasure. And the Dion's is just a fringe benefit there. So, so wonderful to be here. Hey, if you have a Bible, would you turn to the book of Jonah? And we love Skip and Linya. And uh, of course, bummer not getting to see them as they're out. But uh, we pray that God will bring them back here safely to you. And the book of Jonah, we're going to be going through this evening. When I was a kid, uh, one of the scariest things I ever heard was that in a moment of frustration, my parents told me, Levi, we just hope one day you have a kid exactly like you. That's what we hope. This frightened me more than anything else they'd ever told me because I was a serious punk. I mean, Dennis the Menace, role model. Bart Simpson, I made him look like a saint. I mean, we're talking a real problem child. One time I convinced my little brother to play hide and go seek with me on, uh, on the roof. Yeah, I got in big trouble for that one. Birthday was coming up. I lost my whole birthday. So to this day, I'm a year younger than I should be. It's kind of, <clears throat> kind of a bummer. But, but, you know, my parents loved me too much to get away with stuff like that. And their discipline proved it to me. And now I'm thankful for it. I'm thankful they taught me I can't just do whatever I want. And our Heavenly Father is no different. I titled this message, God Rocks the Punk. And we're going to see in the life of Jonah that God loves his kids so much that when we act like punks, when we're out of sorts, that he's willing to discipline us. Proverbs 3 says, because he loves us, he disciplines the children that he delights in. And he's willing to rock our worlds at times to do great things in us and to do great things through us. Well, let's waste no time. Jonah chapter 1, verse 1. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and cry out against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. Father, we pray that you would speak to us through your word. We pray for your Holy Spirit who authored these words, moved like the wind through a sail in the lives of your servants who wrote the Bible, that that same Holy Spirit would give life to our mortal bodies. And then even now you would speak to us and you would show us how to live lives that would make you happy. And that we would, Lord, not only be hearers of your word, but doers of it. And we also pray if anyone today is listening to this who doesn't know you here in the building, watching on the web or listening by radio, that you would draw them to yourself. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, timeline-wise, as we come into the book of Jonah, know that we are picking up just after the ministry of Elisha, the prophet. Uh, The year is 760 B.C., And he was a contemporary of Amos and Hosea. Uh, Jonah grew up in Galilee, same area where Jesus grew up. And his name means dove or one who mourns. He was a son of someone named Amittai, a name that means the son of truth. So if we piece together Jonah's name, Jonah, son of Amittai, he was a dove or one who mourned the son of truth. And that's a perfect name uh, for someone who was called to the ministry called to mourn out or cry out or herald out the truth of God's word. And that's exactly what he did because we're told here in the text, one day God's word came to Jonah. You ask, how did it come? We don't know. Uh, Maybe a dream. Maybe God whispered to his heart or spoke audibly to him. I can tell you this, the way that God communicates to us isn't always how we'd expect, is it? 
Elijah was looking for it in the thunder and the lightning and the fire, but he got it in the still small voice. But we can be sure that God always speaks to us through his word. Well, however it came, God sends Jonah this Old Testament text message and Jonah gets it and then was shocked by it, shocked by what he saw. Now, I've had some text messages that have surprised me before, especially when my kids get a hold of my wife's cell phone, right? You get this text, it's like 9Q4X115, smiley face. You're like, well, that's either my daughter or my wife's lost her mind. Uh, But Jonah was surprised by what God stamped upon the surface of his soul. Go to Nineveh? Nineveh was the capital of Assyria, the lone superpower on the face of the earth at this time. And it was an impressive city. God calls it a great city. It was impressive, like Vegas or or New York City or L.A. You just see what man's been able to do. And that's the kind of vibe Nineveh had. Walls 19 miles in diameter, 100 feet high. It was impressive. But uh, in spite of the fact that even archaeologists say that it's one of the most amazing cities of antiquity, it was also a very wicked city, God said. Their wickedness came up against them before the Lord. We know they were bloodthirsty and they worshipped many bloodthirsty gods. They, when, it, when they went out in war, had pity on none, killing women and children along with men. Uh, those who they, they took captive uh, would be skinned alive and have the skins of their bodies stretched outside the walls of the city uh, with heads stacked up outside the gates in great heaps. Appendages like lips, noses, ears, and fingers were badges uh, given out as, as, as trinkets of war, kind of like we give out ribbons in this society. So now you kind of see what's going on here. When Joseph gets this text message from God, and it's like, go to Nineveh. He's like, are you joking? They drink haterade in Nineveh. I'll get jacked, right? Reason number one, Jonah didn't want to go there. It was a dangerous mission. But reason number two, Jonah didn't love the Ninevites, didn't want them to get saved, and it's difficult to effectively minister to people that you don't love. So what does he do? God says, go. Jonah says, no. No. Verse three, he bails. Look at it. But Jonah arose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa. And found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. What's happening? God said, I want you to go 500 miles to the east to Nineveh. And Jonah's like, you know, Spain is sounding good this time of year. So he went 2,000 miles to the west to Tarshish, what is in modern day Spain. And twice in that verse we read, Jonah fled from the presence of the Lord. I'd underline that if I were you. Because this tells us not only is Jonah running on the outside. He's running on the inside as well, running away from God. He's gone into what I would call flight mode, flight mode. You know, like when you get on the airplane and the pilot's like, hey, if you want to be able to use your phone in flight, turn it to flight mode so you can't get texts and calls. An iPhone becomes an iPod touch and that way you can use it to play games or whatever you're going to do on the flight. And and that's what Jonah effectively has done. He's put his heart into the non-transmitting mode. He's decided he's not taking God's texts. He's not taking any calls. Everything's going straight to voicemail. And there's a do not disturb hung sign hung outside of his soul. Now, people do this all the time for different reasons. Unsaved people. The Bible calls the, the Holy Spirit's role in their life the one of conviction before they come to Christ. Jesus said he will convict you of sin and righteousness and judgment. And so as the Holy Spirit convicts, people go into flight mode, ignoring his knocking. But sometimes, like Jonah, God's kids go into flight mode as well. When at times, we do know what his will is, but we don't like it. 
Like Peter, after the resurrection, he was supposed to go preach. What did he do? I'm going fishing is what he said he was going to do. I remember when my wife and I first started to have the sneaking suspicion God was calling us to leave South Orange County and to move to Montana and plant a church in the middle of winter. We were tempted to say, I don't, I didn't, what? I can't hear you. You can't hear you. God, sorry. Right? But eventually I started to be afraid that if I didn't go, a great moose would come out of the woods, swallow me up whole and spit me out in Montana if I didn't. So we just went ahead and went. Other times, God's kids go into flight mode when they've fallen for temptation, when they've returned to something from their old life. And now all of a sudden they become very difficult to get a hold of. They drop off the spiritual radar. They're not showing up at church. Why? Well, because you're avoiding the, the calls and the interactions and the questions that would be helpful to bring you back to the path that you're avoiding. What are you doing? You're fleeing from the presence of the Lord. William Banks said, quote, attempting to run away from God's will is like fleeing light and falling into darkness. It's relinquishing wealth and welcoming poverty, disdaining wisdom in order to wallow in ignorance. Running from God is abandoning joy and meeting sorrow. It's giving up peace and order for chaos and confusion. Not to mention the fact that it's also impossible. Psalm 139, you know it well. God, basically, David responding to God says this, you are basically the worst person ever to play hide and go seek with. That's what David says there. Where can I go from your presence? I go here, you're there. I go here, you're there. I can't get away from you no matter what I do. There's nowhere you can go where God isn't. And Jonah's about to discover that where God is concerned, you can run, but you can't hide. And in verse 4, we see the first of four things that God uses to rock his world. And it's the weather. The weather. But the Lord sent out a great wind on the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship was about to be broken up. Now, literally, when it says the Lord sent out, you might want to underline that. It means the Lord hurled. And the idea is like the imagery of someone throwing a frisbee. God threw the storm into the path of the ship. And you get some idea of how bad of a storm this was by the reaction of the sailors in verse 5. They begin to throw cargo overboard and pray to their gods. Now, whenever I fly and you experience turbulence on the plane, I instantly look up to the flight attendants. They're like my gauge on how serious things are. Because if they keep serving drinks and don't bat an eye, you're like, okay, this is no big deal. If they put the drink card away quickly, sit down and buckle themselves up in a little, you know, seat, then it's like, okay, things are a little more serious. If they start crossing themselves, strapping on a parachute, you're like, you are in trouble, friend. (laughs) Hopefully things are okay with your heart and God. And that's effectively how these sailors reacted, which tells us it was no small squall at all. Try to say that three times fast, right? It also tells us something about what happens to the human heart when it's face-to-face with death. Two things. Number one, death makes things that seem so important in life altogether insignificant. They've begun to throw their cargo overboard, and these are merchant sailors. They live their income. They're basically burning their paychecks, throwing money overboard, and that's because here on their deathbed or death boat, what, money doesn't mean a thing. I have never... In, in my you know, few years as a pastor, been in a hospital with someone dying, leaned over to hear their final words before they went into eternity and heard someone say, I just wish I had more money. 
Never heard it once. And that's because Proverbs 11.4 says, Riches do not profit in the day of wrath. Number two thing death does to us is it forces us to wonder where we're going. Notice they begin to pray to their gods. You can't help but start to wonder about the afterlife. Where am I going to go? Heaven or hell? What can I do to help that process get swayed at all? It's funny though. The one person on the ship God was actually trying to get a hold of is the one guy who didn't seem to get the memo here. Because verse 5 tells us he's down in the ship sleeping. To which we go, how could you sleep at a time like this? Well, I don't know, maybe he suffered from motion sickness, had popped a couple Dramamine and was conked out. Maybe he was tired from the 60-mile walk from Gath Heifer, where he lived, to Joppa, where he got on the boat. But most of all, I think it's just because it is exhausting to run from God, isn't it? It's exhausting to run on the inside. To quote William Banks again, nothing weighs a man down so heavily as the burden of sin. Isn't that true? So the sailors wake him up and they tell him this, it's time to pray to your God. Now they had prayed to theirs, they had their idols and shrines set up, but they're like, no, you know what, we're hedging our bets here. Calling all gods, right? All available deities to the, de- to the, po- to the poop deck, right? Get up here and Jonah, could you pray too? And as everyone's up there, they cast lots uh, to decide whose fault this is. And God made Jonah be revealed as the culprit, the one in sin. He was responsible. And in verse 8, they said to him, please tell us for whose cause is this trouble upon us? What's your occupation? Classic guy, even in a trial, the only question they can muster is, so what do you do, right? Uh, Where do you come from? What is your country? And of what people are you? Now, all these questions are geared at figuring out why he had sinned in a way that would bring this upon him. What could he have done so bad? So they're like, where do you live? Where are you from? He's like, Israel, what do you do for a living? Um, I'm a prophet. Awkward, right? I'm a pastor, he tells them. Well, at this point, Jonas sort of tries to start witnessing to them, but there's no confidence because when you're not living a holy life, you have no confidence in your service for God. And so he, he fumbles. He's like, well, God's creator. He made heaven and earth and, and he is the living God and I fear him. And, and in verse 10, they got exceedingly afraid and said to him, why have you done this? For the men knew that he fled from the presence of the Lord because he told them. So he spilled his guts here. Pretty bad day when the heathen sailors are getting on your case and telling you how you should be walking with Jesus, right? I mean, that's a bad day for a pastor. And they ask a great question. Why would you do this? If the Lord is God, if you know he made the earth and the, and the sea, if you fear him and are so afraid of what he would think of you, uh, why would you do this? Why would you disobey him? Ouch. Ouch, to be called in your sin, on your hypocrisy here. What does this tell us? Jot it down. A believer in sin is a danger, not just to himself, but to others. And the collateral damage of our disobedience is the shame we can bring to the gospel. We can cause non-believers to have pretty compelling reasons not to give their hearts to Christ. So they now ask Jonah, well, what should we do? What can we do to rectify the situation? And the answer is easy. All he needs to say is turn this ship around. We're going to Nineveh. I've got me some preaching to do. Instead, in verse 12, he says, throw me in the sea. (laughs) You want it to end? Kill me. Throw me in the ocean. Man overboard. What's the message? Death before repentance. (laughs) I'd rather die than obey, quite frankly. Is this guy stubborn or what? 
They throw him in the ocean. The weather immediately calms, at which point God puts Jonah on a strict seafood diet. Only he is the seafood's diet. Verse 17, now the Lord had prepared a great fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. This is kind of like sushi eating in reverse. You have the fish eating the raw human. And, uh, and to recap now where we're at so far, God said go, Jonah said no, and God said do do, do do, do do, do do, do do, ah, right? And Jonah moves from dealing with the weather to dealing with our second element, the whale. The whale. And some of you are like, wait a minute, Levi, not a whale, not a whale. It says fish. Whale's a mammal, gives birth to live young, right? Warm-blooded. This is a fish. This is not a mammal. Well, before you're so quick to correct, hold on a second. In verse 17, the word in the Hebrew for fish is actually dog, D-A-H-G. And it just means great sea creature. And that leaves plenty of different options open because there are a lot of different sea creatures under the sea. Under the sea. I have a little girl, sorry. Uh, but it could be the world's largest creature, the blue whale, measuring 110 feet long, weighing up to 150 tons. Could be the largest fish, the whale shark, which grows up to 41 and a half feet long. Could be a lot of different things in between those two as well. A lot of people speculate that it could be the sperm whale which usually gets up to about 50 feet long. And the reason they think this is most items that are recovered from the sperm whale's stomach are usually intact, meaning they swallow their food whole. Their moms are always telling them to chew, but they don't listen. And one sperm whale was caught with a bottom-dwelling shark intact in its stomach. Now, whether it was one of these things or none of these things or God made a new thing special to eat him for this assignment, something ate him. And that's the scary part. That's the terrifying part to me. Because I've surfed. I've been out there. Actually, recently I was surfing in the, the Dana Point Harbor when a gray whale surfaced that had been uh, showing up sick. SeaWorld had taken some fishing nets off of him, hoped he would swim out to join its friends, and it didn't. It just stayed there. And uh, we showed up surfing, and it popped up out of the water. That was scary. Uh, but we, my friend goes, well, let's, let's surf up to it. And I'm like, okay. And so we paddle right up to this 30-foot-long gray whale. And we found out later it's illegal to go within 100 yards of any whale in the ocean. But we didn't know that. So we went about five yards away from it. We're hanging about. And then we got really scared because it was really big. And we were just kind of freak, freaked out by the whole, by the whole thing. And even recent news events, uh, SeaWorld, you know what I'm talking about? Things are scary in the water. Now we find out that they don't call them killer whales for no good reason. I mean, there's a reason for that. Although Shamu is now a serial killer whale, three times there, so yikes. Uh, but but it not just being eaten, as bad as that would be, hanging out in the water. We don't know how long he treaded water before the thing got him. But then think about the reality setting in of, of you're in this whale, now what? And scientists have speculated that if it was a sperm whale, he would be dealing with temperatures between 104 and 108 degrees Fahrenheit. It would be a humid terrible smelling place and his unpleasant interaction with the gastric juices would bleach his hair leave his skin yellowish and burnt and you have to realize something at this point in the story this really happened this is not oh pinocchio and geppetto did he light a candle this is not a fairy tale This is not a fish story that got bigger over time. This is not a fabrication. It's a fact. I bring this to your attention 
Because there's probably no story in the Bible so openly ridiculed by the opponents of Scripture. And the reason I believe this happened is simple. Because Jesus told me so. That's why I believe. Jot it down. Matthew 12, verses 39 through 40. He there referred to Jonah's story in the whale as a fact. Not just any fact. He put it on the same shelf of truth as his own resurrection. So what does that tell us? If Jonah is fiction, Christ is not risen. And then we got a lot bigger problems. But if you can believe that God could raise Christ Jesus from the dead, then believing that God brought Jonah through this ordeal in the whale, piece of cake, easy to swallow. No pun intended. Chapter 2, verse 1. Then Jonah prayed. Underline that. Then Jonah prayed. When? Then. We're told that it was after three days and three nights in the following verse. Are you kidding me? It took him 72 hours in a hot, stinky stomach, sitting on a pile of rotting fish, arms crossed, pouty look on his face. I'd rather sit here than go to Nineveh. It's not that bad. I got plenty to eat. It's pretty warm. And right. 72 hours. He finally tapped out. Finally said, uncle, and he prayed. And chapter 2, if you read it, records his prayer. We won't, but the language you would notice is familiar. You're like, that seems like that phrase, I've heard it before. And you're right. The prayer borrows from no less than nine different psalms. No one quotation exactly, but he's jumping around, which tells us God uh, had done what he said he would. When you hide his word in his heart, it doesn't return void. He didn't have a pen light and a Gideon's Bible in there. An iPhone with a Bible app on it. So he had to do with what he had there. And what the word of God that had been hidden in his heart came out then. What does that tell us? When you're in a difficult spot, you're only going to have the amount of God's word to use that you already hid in there before you got in the pickle, before you got in the jam. How can a young man keep his way pure? By taking heed according to God's word. That's the importance of a daily consumption of God's word. Well, the key verse to his prayer is verse 7. My soul fainted within me, then I remembered the Lord. After three days of fighting, after three days in flight mode, then I had no more to give, I ran out of juice, then I remembered the Lord. He had tried his hardest to put God out of his mind, but God had not let him go. And this whole experience with the weather and the whale were God's way of getting Jonah to surrender, and so it became worth it and valuable and profitable. And friend, the most difficult things you're going through, the the trials of your faith, the circumstances that that are vexing to you, they're not in vain if you are caused to surrender through those things and to have your heart softened to a point where you can hear God speak to you. Well, verse 10, so the Lord spoke to the fish and it vomited Jonah onto dry land. Don't you wish you could pull that up on YouTube? Well, chapter 3, verse 1, newly puked out onto the beach... The word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and preach to it the message that I tell you. And you're like, deja vu here. This seems strikingly familiar from what I heard in chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, and you're right. And that's because our God is all about the second chances. The moment Jonah repents, God essentially acts like it never happened, And gives him this fresh start. He was forgiven. Now don't mistake this for there being no consequences. 
Even when we're forgiven, there are still practical consequences from our sin. For Jonah, he stinks and he'll probably never eat seafood again, but he's forgiven. And so God doesn't come to him and say, hey, idiot, how about we try this one more time or I'm going to monster.com and get me a new prophet? No, no. He, he instead says to him, now the word of the Lord comes, arise, go and preach. He acts like he never messed up. And this time Jonah says, okay, let's go. Pulls the seaweed off of his head and heads to Nineveh. That's what he does. Chapter 3, verse 4, his ministry. And Jonah began to enter the city on the first day's walk. Then he cried out and said, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. His message is one of death. He shows up into the city and he says to them, wherever he goes, just over a month, 40 days, and you're going to die. God's judgment is coming. The end is near. There was no song. There was no elaborate service. That was all he had to say. To which we would go, where's the grace? Where's the love? And we could respond, if someone is truly in imminent danger, the most loving thing you can do is to warn them, is to tell them. Not to coddle them and encourage them, but to let them know they are, the train is coming and you're on the tracks. This can be effective. In the Washington Post a few years back, there was an article about how when an area like New Orleans or Florida is hit with a hurricane and an evacuation is ordered, many people refuse to leave their homes. Research, the article said, has found that people don't evacuate their homes because of a history of false alarms, a fear of leaving pets, and failure to get the message. The study said that the least effective way to get someone to leave their house and believe they're in danger is to uh, issue a media warning. They just don't work. It's just white noise. A more effective method is a door-to-door person with a personal plea. But the study found the most effective method to get stubborn residents to leave is to approach them at their door with a toe tag from a morgue and to ask them if they're going to stay just to fill it out and apply it to their toe and leave it on so that when they float by later, they're easier to identify. People were like, we'll go with you. Let me get my birth certificate, right? This is similar to Jonah's style of evangelism. He goes to Nineveh and it's like toe tag theology, door to door. How you doing? You're going to die, right? God bless you real good. In 40 days, it's going to happen. And his message to these people is to live in light of their death as a fact. And that resonates with people. You're going to die one day. That's something to talk about. Charles Spurgeon to a group of young pastors once said, quote, young gentlemen, do not allow any emotion to keep you from warning men to prepare to die. And that's the bad news of the gospel that needs to be there. But the good news is that Jesus overcame death. He conquered it by getting out of the tomb, kicking death in its teeth. And the same God that created the womb destroyed the tomb. And so we can tell people, yeah, you're going to die, but you can live if you put your life in Christ. And so both sides of the story need to be there. Well, unbelievably, after giving this short sermon, only eight words long, there was a tremendous response. Verse 5. So the people of Nineveh believed God, proclaimed a fast, and put on sackcloth from the greatest to the least of them. What are we seeing here? It's called salvation. His warning of death from God caused them to believe God's promises. Jot it down, Genesis 15, verse 6. When someone believes God's promises, it is accounted unto them as righteousness, But it wasn't just a shallow belief that wasn't real because their actions proved it. 
They took their faith and lived it out. Just like James says, faith without works is dead. You can say you believe in God. Good for you. So do the demons. And uh, now what? Right? There, there has to be a working out of your faith in your life. If it's real, it will change you. Robert Murray McShane said it this way, quote, The gospel is a holy-making gospel. It will not allow men to live on in their sins. If Christ had come to save men in their sins, to pluck them from hell, and then to let them continue to enjoy their lusts, unregenerate men would love the gospel. But Jesus is a holy Savior. He gave himself for us that he might redeem us from all iniquity. And so we see them believe and change in light of it. And the result of their salvation, verse 10, when God saw that they had turned from their evil ways, they were spared. The whole city. So much so that the king didn't stop at all the people. He had all the animals dressed in sackcloth. How he got the cats and dogs to put the sackcloth on is a mystery to me. But the whole city, upwards, some think of 600,000 people saved. Making this the biggest response to an evangelistic invitation ever recorded anywhere in history. And in Luke 15, Jesus said, one sinner causes the presence of the angels to be filled with celebration. They're breaking out pinatas and pushing each other into the bushes. They're so excited when one person gets saved. 600,000 just gave their lives to God. You'd think that Jonah would be doing end zone dances, right? Butting out the moonwalk or something. I mean, this is a, what any, what any preacher could ever dream of. But as we make our way into chapter 4, we don't see a celebration. No, no, we see a pity party. Check it out. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he became angry. So he prayed to the Lord and said, Ah, Lord, was not this what I said when I was still in my country? Therefore I fled previously to Tarshish. For I know that you're a gracious and merciful God, slow to anger and abundant in forgiveness, one who relents from doing harm. And that was why Jonah didn't want to go. Jonah may have done now what God wanted, but apparently God didn't do what Jonah wanted. Jonah wanted the Ninevites to get wiped out. He wanted them to be incinerated. And he reveals to God the reason he ran away in the first place. The problem wasn't that he didn't know God's will, but he did know God's will and he didn't like it, making him a full-on hypocrite. Because when he sinned, when he blew it, did he want grace and forgiveness for himself? You better believe it. He prayed, asking for forgiveness, asking to be pardoned. But then here he becomes a, a grace Nazi when the Ninevites need forgiveness. Portion controlling forgiveness, no salvation for you. That's what he says to them. But before we're too quick to jump on Jonah's case, know this. Leslie Allen once wrote, quote, A Jonah lurks in every Christian heart. A Jonah lurks in every Christian heart. Isn't it so easy to become the older brother in the story of the prodigal son? When we see someone fall off the path and, and then we're, we're, we're here just plowing, you know, along, pulling, you know, uh, towing the line and, and all of a sudden they come back and have this dramatic, oh, I'm so sorry. And all, maybe, maybe God chooses to elevate them and, and use them in some special way. And we're like, what? I've been here all along. And, and they were out, you know, you know, injecting heroin into their eyeballs. And you, what about me, right? And what about my part? What about my barbecue? What about my ring on my finger? And, and the father's like, are you kidding me? You've always had everything I've given you. Your, your brother was dead. He's alive. He was lost. He's now found. Our heart, when God gives out forgiveness that we never deserved, 
Whether we grew up, you know, from when we were knee-high to a grasshopper in the church, we never deserved anything from God. But, but death and hell, and, and He gives us lavishly what we don't deserve, we should always celebrate when those receive forgiveness that God chooses to give it to. Jonah goes so far as to say in his discouragement, look at verse 3, please take my life from me. It's better that I die than I live. Is this guy emo or what? Like the bangs, the skinny jeans, and the dashboard confessional, the whole package. He even says later, I'd rather die than see the Ninevites, you know, basically ever in, in, in church walking with you. And, and he goes out uh, of the city a ways, climbs up on a hill, and hopes that they backslide, is what he does. Hopes they backslide so the angelic B-2 bomber comes in and, and just torches them all. And while they're waiting on the hill, he encounters the final two tools of God's rocking of his world, the worm and the wind. Verse 6. And the Lord God prepared a plant and made it come up over Jonah, that it might be shade for his head to deliver him from his misery. So Jonah was very grateful for the plant. But as morning dawned the next day, God prepared a worm And it so damaged the plant that it withered. And it happened, when the sun arose, God prepared a vehement east wind, and the sun beat on Jonah's head, so that he grew faint. Then he wished death for himself, and said, it is better for me to die than to live. (laughs) Looking at this, it would be easy to go, is this really necessary? It kind of just seems like God is messing with him here at this point. He did what God wanted him to do. Here's what you have to understand. In God's economy, the condition of the worker is just as important as the work itself. The condition of the worker is just as important as the work itself. The reason we have a hard time getting this is because in America, we are dominated by this scoreboard mentality. Like, oh, did they play well? Oh, were they nice? We don't care. Did they win? Did they lose? Who, who gets to walk away with bragging rights? That's how we look at things. And if we looked at it, that, this way we could say, well, he didn't like going, but he went, he preached, they got saved, the job is done, good enough. Not how God sees things. If getting the job done was all that mattered, would God have really sent Jonah? Is he really the best that God could do? I doubt it. I'm not the best that God could do. I'm looking at you. You looked at, I don't know if you're the best that God could do. For one thing, God could use animals. Balaam's donkey talk, Jesus said rocks and crap. Could you imagine if animals were given the task of human evangelism? You're sitting at Starbucks and a squirrel comes up to you and says, if you don't believe the gospel, you're nuts, right? I mean, really? I'd get saved. I would. Your dog approaches you, paw in his hands, you know, oh, I've just been chasing my tail, the hydrant, the toilet, the cat, nothing satisfies. I'm just empty. Vanity, vanity, right? I mean, it'd be pretty effective. The Bible says that the angels desire to look into the things of the gospel. I think they would make pretty effective preachers. In the tribulation, there will be angels flying around preaching the gospel. He could send them. Why does God choose to use us? We're the selfish ones. We're the ones who, when in the night of the crucifixion, all we're doing is sitting around the upper room going, am I cooler than Peter? Because I thought I was better than him. And Jesus like, I just wanted to wash your feet and stuff. And can you guys ever get anything? Why does God use us? Because he loves our involvement. And so God sees that more work needs to be done, not through Jonah, but in Jonah. The mission is accomplished, but the man is unfinished. And so continues the process of preparation. Process of preparation. Yeah, didn't you see it all through the book? Chapter 1, verse 4, the Lord sent this wind or prepared a great storm. Chapter 1, verse 17, the Lord prepared a great fish. Chapter 4, verse 6, the Lord prepared a plant. 
4 verse 7, the Lord prepared a worm. Verse 8, the Lord prepared a wind. Weather, whale, worm, wind. Why? Because the worker wasn't done yet. And God was using these two things, the worm and the wind, as the final tools to perform a chiropractic adjustment on Jonah's soul. Unlike the whale that ate him, the worm just ate his plant that he loved and was happy about. And when he got bummed out, God reacted to his anger in verse 10. The Lord said, you've had pity on a plant for which you have not labored, nor made it grow, which came up in a night and perished in a night. Should I not pity Nineveh, that great city in which are more than 120,000 persons who cannot discern between their right hand and their left and much livestock? God points out to Jonah that he's all aggro because a grub killed a shrub, but he doesn't care that a bunch of people are going to die and go to hell. In fact, that's what he wants to happen. And he's pointing out the, uh, the difficulty of reconciling that in his mind, that Jonah has no compassion. And God wants his people to have a passion for people. God wants his people who have been forgiven to turn and freely forgive. He wants us to have a burden for the lost. And though the story ends there with a question mark, in fact, I believe that Jonah got the lesson. The fact that he recorded this book and wrote it, recording all of his flaws and failures, is enough evidence to me that he was a changed man. God rocked the punk. And you know what? I'm thankful that God is rocking this punk as well. He's in the process of it, though. He's in the process of it. And and God wanted Jonah, he wanted you, he wants me to understand that the door of forgiveness is open to all. That's the great message of the book, the message of the cross. That God is not willing for any to perish, but for all to repent and to believe in him and come to forgiveness and to everlasting life. And friend, that is as true today in Albuquerque as it was that day in Nineveh that that Jonah rolled into town. And so I bring to you the same message that he brought. There's going to come a day and you're going to die. The Bible says it is appointed for man once to die and then to be judged. I can't be as specific as Jonah was telling you it was 40 days. I can't tell you if it's going to be 40 years or 40 minutes. But the day's going to come when you're going to stand before God. And you know what? If you don't know Christ, what I can tell you is today is the day of salvation. Maybe he's been trying to get through to you. Maybe he's been trying to speak to you. And maybe you haven't been taking his calls. Maybe you haven't been taking his text messages. Other things are more important. And that's exactly what the enemy wants. He wants you to remain in flight mode all the way to hell. But what I love about God is that even if we have a do not disturb sign on our hearts, Jesus still knocks. Revelation 3.20, Jesus speaking, Behold, I stand at the door of your heart and I knock. If you hear my voice, open the door and invite me in. I will come into you. Maybe he's knocking on your heart right now. Maybe he's been showing you that, that he wants to forgive you and that all the sin in your life that never satisfied can be, can be replaced with everlasting life. And that's the choice that's before you now. The choice between life and death. Because you can pretend that you don't hear him. You can turn your iPod up a little bit louder and, and have more parties and more friends and more interactions on Twitter and all of a sudden you won't hear him anymore. And that's what the enemy wants. Or you can choose to respond to him, choose to invite him into your heart. And that's what God wants. And that's a choice that only you can make. Maybe you were brought here by a friend. Your friend can't make that choice for you. I love you and even though I don't know you, I wish you would make that choice. I can't make you make that choice. God has chosen not to even make that choice for you, giving you the vehicle of human choice. You can choose to reject him if you want to, but that's not what he wants. He desires that none should perish, 
but that all would respond to him in repentance and have everlasting life. All I can tell you is that if that's you tonight, you should not wait to make that decision. It's easy to think that we are going to have many more opportunities just like this, church services just like this, because maybe you're thinking, I've had many more opportunities in the past than I can think of. Last time I was in Albuquerque, we were trying to leave uh, some port. My family and I were leaving. When I travel with my family, I have to go into like shock mode on the inside. I'm an efficient traveler by myself. With my family, there's strollers, there's backpacks, it's carnage, right? So we always try and get to the airport early. Otherwise, I'm like, uh, like a drill sergeant. And so we got there early. Flight's at 5.30, so we're there plenty early. We get through security. One of my daughters runs off into a restricted zone. Things are flashing. I'm like, ah, we're fine. And we get through. Should we need to go to the gate, my wife asks me. No, we got half an hour before they'll even begin boarding. Let's get ice cream. So we're at Baskin Robbins and buying our ice cream. And, and then we hear over the loudspeaker, uh, flight number 4455 is now in final boarding. My ears perk up like a dog's, right? That's our flight. Uh, Will Lusco, party of four, please make your way to gate B45, right? And, and I'm like, oh my, run! So we just take off, right? Mad sprint down the terminal, right? I'm pushing old ladies, little babies out of the way. We're going to get to the door if I have to wedge my body in it, right? And it's at the end of the hall, of course, and... We get there and Pam huffing and puffing and, and the door's still open. She's like, let's go, huh? I'm like, yeah. She's like, uh-huh. And so, so we get on and, and now we have to get on the plane, full flight. So we, we come into the, into the door. The pilot's just standing there looking. I'm like, get in your little door, dude, right? We turn around and <laughs> last row, four seats. Everyone on the plane is there. Here's the best part, licking our, we still have ice cream cones in our hand, you know, like, and, uh, <laughs> which they know we got after security. So we, we walk down the walk of shame. I call it the green mile to our seats. We sit down and we made it. What's the point? I didn't respond to the first call. Boarding zone one, zone two. Bo- Here's the call I responded to. Will the idiots at Baskin Robbins please make, right? This is the final, final boarding call. The, the, the door's about to shut. When God knocks on your heart, it's easy to think, I've got lots of more opportunities. It's easy to think, I, I, this is zone one still. I got a lot of time, I can, I can make a choice. But here, here's the thing, tonight might be your final opportunity. You don't know how many breaths are left in your lungs, how many beats of your heart remain. But if Christ is speaking to you, the Bible would tell you, seek the Lord while he may be found. Respond to this invitation I'm going to give you now. Let's pray together. Everyone, heads bowed, eyes closed, pray together. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the truth that you love us that you died for us and that you rose and that you're willing to forgive no matter what we've done. No one's done such bad things that you can't forgive them and no one here has done so many good things in their life that they don't need to be forgiven. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and as Jesus hung on the cross at Skull Hill and as his blood wet the ground there that day, you had laid on him the iniquities of us all. The bill's been paid. Our ticket's secured. All we have to do is go to will call. Believe, receive, and turn from our sins. And you will forgive us. Abundantly pardon us. Because of our faith and repentance. Based on what Jesus did in our place that we could never do on our own. And even now as we're praying, as heads are bowed and eyes are closed. How many of you tonight would want to do what the Ninevites did? Believe God's promises. And respond in repentance to the the gospel truth that God loves you. you, You're saying, I want to go to heaven. I want to go to sleep tonight with a clean conscience. Having all the tattoos of my sin washed away. And be given eternal life 
by Jesus Christ. If that's you, would you raise your hand up in the air right now? God bless you right in the back. I see your hand. Anyone else? Raise your hand up high so I can see you. Raise it up. In the back to my left, right over here. Don't put this off. God bless you right in the front to my right. Doesn't matter what you've done. If in the balcony or family room, if you're watching on the web or radio, I can't see you, but God can. Put your faith in Him right now. And here in the room, raise your hand up. Right to my left, right over here in the back. Maybe some like me have grown up in the church. I grew up in this church. I knew all the Bible stories. I went to every camp and everything. And and there came a day before I went into ninth grade when I realized that knowing all about God isn't enough. Going to Sunday school isn't enough. I needed to have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Because being religious can't get you to heaven. It can keep you from heaven, though. Only those who have a relationship with Jesus Christ will be led into heaven. If you want that tonight, maybe there's some prodigal sons or daughters here, and you want to turn around and give your heart to Christ tonight, raise your hand up. Anyone else? And then this invitation will come to a close. Father, I thank you for these who have raised their hands and and indicated they want to give their hearts to Jesus Christ. And right where they're sitting, I pray you come into their hearts as they put their faith in you. For those of you with your hands raised, would you say this prayer with me out loud to God? Would you say, Dear Lord, I know that I'm a sinner. And I ask that you would forgive me. I believe you died on the cross. I believe you rose from the dead. I ask you to come into my heart and change me. I turn from my sins and I turn to you in faith. Be my Lord and my Savior and my friend. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you for listening to this service from Calvary of Albuquerque. If you would like more information about what you've heard in this message or about Calvary of Albuquerque, please visit our website at www.calvaryabq.org. If you have made a decision to follow Christ or would like someone to pray for you, please leave a message with our prayer watch line at 505-344-3658. Thank you and God bless.